0: I'm going to be speaking for a little bit longer than usual this evening, but I've already given you a bit of a missions update as part of my talk, so there's a, think of that as another whole thing. I haven't really started yet. And we're not doing a Bible reading because as we talk, we're going to read some Bible passages. So Isaiah, think of it this way, we'll let him be our preacher, okay? And I'll just guide us through some of the passages. If you have your poster, um, your Isaiah poster, I don't know if there are any left out in the vestibule. I, I think I asked Monty to announce this morning that people should bring their posters, and he did do so. He's given me a thumbs up. So if you don't know what I'm talking about with a poster, make sure you grab one on your way out. This is a a poster that on one side of A3 attempts to diagram a lot of what's happening in the book of Isaiah. Now, here's the news. Do you remember I told you this two weeks ago? We're doing Isaiah in about 15 sermons, but we're doing the first 39 chapters in three, all right? And if you were here two weeks ago, you'll know that we really only did chapter six, which means that tonight... We're doing one to 27 in one night. We're going to try. Let's see how it goes. When we started a couple of weeks ago, we thought, let's get to know Isaiah. And the best place to do that was in chapter six. It's probably the most biographical part of the book where you get a feel for who he is. And we learned about his encounter with God his response to God, and then God's salvation. Isaiah was given a job. God called him to be his prophet, God's spokesman of God's message to God's people. And in the second half of the chapter, if you can remember it, or feel free to start flicking, you'll need a Bible tonight. Just have it open, Isaiah. Work the pages as I guide us through it. In the second half of chapter 6, after It's kind of weird. Isaiah agrees to take the job and then God tells him what it's going to be like. Maybe that's a good way to do it. So Isaiah says, yes, here I am, send me. And then God says, here's what it's going to be like. It's going to be terrible. You're going to preach, preach, and preach your whole life. Nobody's going to listen. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be persecuted. Isaiah, what do you think? Are you in? And Isaiah, as we gathered that first week, he says, yeah, I'm in. So right away, last last time, we learned that this message he's going to preach is hard. And as soon as we start reading Isaiah, as soon as we start reading in chapter one, we discover that, that Isaiah did what God called him to do. He he preached a hard message to the people. So if you look at your poster, you'll see that there's a heading, the first section, chapter one, or sorry, chapters one to twelve. Contain a lot of Isaiah's preaching that has to do with judgment that's going to fall on Jerusalem. I'm going to show you a couple of places where I think that's very evident to give you a feel for how this works. So flick back with me. We may as well look right at the start of the book, chapter 1. Look there at verse 2 of chapter 1. So this is Isaiah starting his preaching Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, people given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Woe! Wait a minute, Isaiah. Did you never read How to Win Friends and Influence People? Did you never, like, you're a public speaker? Did Did nobody ever tell you that if you want to speak to a crowd in public, you you try to get them on side when you start? Isaiah doesn't do anything to ease the people in, does he? You're a brood of evildoers. Would we like that if, if that's what we listen to every week in church? If that was the message here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. We said a couple of weeks ago when we started that we should expect Isaiah's preaching to be dramatic. He doesn't just say stuff. He says it with a, a flourish. Turn with me to chapter five. He, he's still on the same theme. He's still talking about God's judgment on his people, but he dramatizes it a wee bit more this time. He says, I'll sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for this vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm gonna do with my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated, and the briars and the thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So this first section of Isaiah chapters one to twelve, serves in many ways as a microcosm for the whole book. Isaiah's preaching from these opening chapters it it just poses a a, a big question: How is this city of Jerusalem, this godless, faithless city that it's gonna that it's become, and and the people of God whom it symbolizes, how are they going to be transformed into a faithful people? a faithful city which walks in God's ways. It's the same question that confronts us as God's people today. How can men and women who are sinful by nature be transformed into the faithful, obedient people of the only living God? Our modern tendency is to Set that kind of question aside to say that's what, that, that stuff is what churches used to talk about in the past. Isaiah won't allow that. We have this tendency to get ourselves off the hook of, of God's righteous anger, his judgment on us, but Isaiah takes us and he puts us right back on the hook. Your children rebelling against your father. You're a vineyard that only grows bad grapes. You're sinners standing under the judgment of God. Isaiah's first word is a word of judgment. We're going to break up our thinking on the text together this evening with some, a couple of songs along the way. There aren't many songs in, in our canon that allow us to to recognize that we stand under God's judgment, but there are one or two, and we're gonna sing one just now. Oh Lord, the clouds are gathering, the fire of judgment burns. Let's stand as we sing.
1: Judgment burns, how we have fallen. O oh Lord, you stand, you stand appalled to see our laws of loss so scorned and I so broken. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy, Lord. Give us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Restore, Restore us, Lord. Revive your church again. Just of war For Restore, Restore us, Lord, revive our church. Let justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-failing stream, a never-failing stream.
0: So Isaiah's message is, first of all, one of judgment but it's not the end of the story. Again, if you look at your poster and notice what the heading says over chapters one to 12, it says that the, Isaiah's teaching is of judgment and hope in Jerusalem. We got a wee early glimpse of that actually in chapter six. I don't know if you remember that. It was quite a short moment at the end of our chapter and our sermon. Towards the end of the chapter, God Told Isaiah that he was going to clear cut the forest. He was going to cut his people down. But he said, verse 13, that the holy seed will be the stump in the land. There's seed in the stump. Although Isaiah's message here in chapters 1 to 12 is predominantly one of judgment, there are glimpses of hope all the way through. Let me show you a couple. Look at chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the, mountains of the, Lord, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains, It'll be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Some of the most beautiful words in the whole of Scripture. And they're right here in the middle of these judgment oracles. Yes, there will be judgment, says Isaiah, but there are days to come, the last days, when God's promises to God's people will come true. When you read those early verses of Isaiah 2, does does it resonate with you? Does it speak to you? Does it point you back? Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, I'll make you a blessing to the nations, and I'll bless you. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. Don't give up hope, Israel. Don't give up on God's promises. He's gonna make them come true. Let's keep on the lookout for these messages of hope. Do you remember what was said at the end of chapter six? That when the Lord cut down his his people, that, that wouldn't be the end of the story. There's seed in the stump. Jump with me to chapter eleven. So we were told in chapter 6 that there's seed in the stump. And we pick up in chapter 11 where we're told that a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he'll judge the needy. With justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw with the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They'll neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the whole earth will be filled with with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Yes, God's judgment is going to fall on his people, but there's seed in the stump and there's a shoot that's going to grow, a shoot from the line of David and the spirit of the Lord will be on him. Who's Isaiah talking about? We better get used to this. Isaiah talking about somebody who's coming in the future in a way that seems a bit ambiguous. Is he talking about this faithful remnant of God's people finally turning the corner, finally learning to live for God's glory in the power of God's Spirit? Or is he talking about an individual person, someone who'll finally get it right everywhere where Israel got it wrong? could be both. Hold on to that thought, but let's notice for now that when there's judgment in Isaiah, there's always hope. Folks, after skimming through these first 12 chapters and noticing how it's a a message of judgment and hope, do you you see how, how we need to hear that today? God holds a mirror always to his people, reminds us that, that we are sinful, that we've fallen short of his glory, that we rightly sit under his judgment. But at the same time, he offers us hope. He reminds us of his great promises and his great purposes for us. He reminds us that there's a, a shoot in the stump and David has a son. The writer to the Hebrews uh, the book we studied last year, he tells us that God's judgment, and this, this, this will seem very counterintuitive to you, so please listen. God's judgment is not a sign of his rejection. It might just be a sign of his love. Here's what the writer to the Hebrews says. He quotes from Proverbs, and he says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Where there's judgment, there's hope. God's disciplining us. He's calling us to return to him. The best thing that we could take from these judgment passages in Isaiah is allow them to grab us to turn us back to repentance and back to God we've been thinking here for a couple of minutes about the hope that Isaiah starts to to raise in this book we're going to sing a song just now where we talk about the hope it's not very clear in these early chapters of Isaiah we'll have to wait to get further into the book, but we know where our hope is. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Shall we sing? So we're beginning to get a feel for the rhythms of Isaiah's message. It's gonna be a message of judgment and hope. It's a message that has to be heard, first of all, by God's own people, and that's where we've started in chapters 1 to 12. The next section, from chapters 13 to 27, Isaiah brings a similar message to the nations beyond Israel. We're going to deal with this much more quickly. You'll be glad to know, but let me show you a little bit of how this works. God's people stand under God's judgment for a particular reason. They are his people, He's in covenant with them, and they have failed to to live their terms in the covenant. It doesn't mean that the covenant's terminated, but it does mean that he'll discipline them, as we've already said. But Israel aren't the only people who are in an accountable relationship with God. Chapter 10, for a moment. We find here that Isaiah, this is him starting to pronounce judgment on people other than Israel, and it's on Assyria. And at this point, it helps to just have a little bit of understanding in the history of Isaiah's times. We're going to do more of this. If you're frustrated that we haven't talked a lot about the history, we will uh, do a slow release on the history of, of Isaiah's context. God has used Assyria as an instrument of his judgment on his people Israel And that's a northern half of what used to be the one nation of Israel, but has become a divided nation of Israel and Judah in the south. So Assyria has been this instrument of judgment in God's hands, but this is where it gets interesting. Verse 5, "'Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, "'in whose hand is the club of my wrath.'" I send him against a godless nation. So the godless nation he's talking about at this point is Israel. The Assyrians are the, the rod of God's anger against his own people, Israel. I dispatch him, the Assyrian, against a people who anger me to seize loot and to snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So God's saying, I've used Assyria to judge my own people, Israel. And in that sense, we might say that God is the one who's responsible for the suffering of his people. He's disciplining them. And that, that is true. That's right. But look at verse seven. Talking about the Assyrian, God says, but this is not what he intends. Not the Assyrian. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy to put an end to many nations. So there's two things going on here at once. Although God's used Assyria to punish his people, to bring judgment on them, he holds Assyria accountable accountable for their their destroying nations for their own gain. So verse 12, they're going to come under judgment. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he'll say, I'll punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Uh, that There's something interesting going on there that I just wanted you to notice. I don't always love the headings that the NIV puts over bits in the Bible. I think you've heard me say before, those are made up. Somebody somewhere just decides what the heading should be and where it should fall. But tonight we're just going to use them as a very a good shorthand. Because it answers for us very quickly, these other nations that fall under God's judgment, which are they? Who are they? So let's skim through it, beginning chapter thirteen. We see that Isaiah is prophesying a judgment on Babylon. Chapter 14, verse 24, against Assyria, 1428 against the Philistines. Then as we flick on, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt. Chapter 20, Egypt and Cush together. Chapter 21, Babylon again. Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, and Tyre. So what he does is he lists a whole load of the local neighboring countries. And although although we might imagine that these ones are chosen specifically as if each one of them somehow is specifically under God's judgment, there's probably a better way to understand it. And that is that the whole earth is in an accountable relationship with God and stands under his judgment. Unless it repents, the world stands under God's judgment. Isaiah says as much, chapter 14, verse 26, have a look. In a part of the book where he's preaching God's righteous judgment on Babylon, Isaiah says this, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Flick for a second to chapter 24. There's a, it's at the beginning of a long list of judgment on individual nations. Isaiah preaches their judgment on the whole earth. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He'll ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It'll be the same for priest and for people, for master and for servant, for the mistress and for the servant, for seller, for buyer, for borrower, for lender, for debtor and creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken his word. God's judgment is over not just Jerusalem and Judah and Israel and the nations mentioned by name in Isaiah's prophecies. It's not only on Genghis Khan and Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, but on all the earth That's Isaiah's message. All the earth stands under God's judgment. When we noticed in chapters 1 to 12 this this very strong sense of God's judgment, some of those very graphic images flattening the forest, God's judgment over God's people, and we read now that God's judgment hangs over the whole earth, We did say back then, where there's judgment, there's hope. God judges people because he loves them, because he hasn't given up on them, because he disciplines them, and he wants to draw them back. What about these nations? They're beyond the borders of Israel. They're outside of this particular ethnic group, these descendants of Abraham. We see now that there's judgment hanging over them. Is there no hope? I need to show you this. It is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. Chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food. Who's it for? For all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds who? All peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. And he'll swallow up death forever. What's he going to do? He's going to wipe away the tears from all faces he'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that, uh, they'll say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Yes, there's judgment and it's over all the earth, but there's hope too. One day the Lord's going to destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. And in case we're wondering, because I am as I read that, what's he talking about? He tells us, he will swallow up death forever. It seems, folks, like the message of hope isn't limited to Israel, it's for all. For all. I asked you at the start of our service, you've forgotten this because it seems like three days ago. I asked you at the start of our service what Dan's WhatsApps had to do with Isaiah's prophecy. It's amazing. There are signs that the prophecy. The prophecies are coming true. Flick with me for last time, chapter nineteen, verses nineteen to twenty-two. You'll love this. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of in the heart of I can hardly say it. Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its borders. It'll be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. If you know your Bible at all, you'll know that Egypt is the enemy. The first and the greatest enemy of the people of God. All those years ago, Moses wanted to bring the people out of Egypt, across its borders, into a desert, so that they could worship their God. What does Isaiah say? Nobody's going across any borders anymore we're going to worship in Egypt. There's going to be an altar in Egypt. Some of you might know that I had the privilege in 2010 of going to the, the third Lausanne conference on world evangelization in Cape Town. I remember sitting in a seminar. It was a huge gathering. The, the whole thing, sorry, was a huge gathering, 4,000 people. But you got to choose seminars. And I went to a seminar and It was one of those moments where you think, oh goodness, I must have chosen the wrong one. I was in a room about the size of our Whitley Hall with 20 other people. There was a guy at the front teaching. He was from Egypt and he was brilliant. And there were some other guys sitting beside me. I turned to them at the end of the the, the lecture and I just made conversation. Where are you from? Egypt. What's it like? It's... Very much majority Muslim. Can be a hard place to be a Christian. That must be tough, I said. And they just lit up. And they said it's the easiest thing in the world to talk to our Muslim neighbors about Jesus. Wow. I didn't know that. But this is what the Lord's doing in Egypt. But what about Dan? I want to keep coming back to that because there's something here and this trip that he's made to work with Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Hold your horses, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. I need to show you where Assyria is. Can we pop up that map, the first of the two maps? All of that green stuff is the Assyrian Empire in the time of Isaiah. So we might say Assyria is to the northeast of where we know Israel is, okay? Reading on in the text, the Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will do what? (laughs) They'll worship together, okay? Israel's two big enemies, worship together. In that day, the Lord, or sorry, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. Israel, my inheritance. Wow. The second slide there, Assyria is the, dark, the darker green to the north. Egypt is the, the green to the, the south. And Lebanon is just north of Israel. This road that runs through Assyria to Egypt, this axis where God's going to build his people is the place where Dan has been working with a fledgling Christian church made up of Lebanese, of Syrians, of Kurds, of just about everybody else who lives in that region. It's staggering. Think about that for a second. Hold this part of Scripture in your heart. If God can build an altar in Egypt... And if he can have a highway, a worship highway running between Egypt and Assyria, there are simply no limits, no limits to his love and his grace and the new hope that we find in him. Folks, this is our God. God. A God who judges his people and the earth, who disciplines all because he loves, but then welcomes all back in love and grace and hope. Let's pray.